and welcome to the Evidence-Based EdTech series. My name is Rose Luckin and I'm a professor with a background in educational technology and AI, working at University College London's Institute of Education. I'm also the founder of Educate Ventures Research. And I'm delighted to be acting as a guest host. Many thanks to the lovely Sophie Bailey for making this joint venture series possible. So EdTech is increasingly all around us. It's in our homes and in the workplace, in the classroom. But whether we're using it to teach others or learning from it ourselves, the question remains, how do we know it works? In this series, I want to connect leading expertise and opinion from worlds of edtech, AI, research and education, and uncover how we build ethical learning tools for teaching and learning that are genuinely informed by the evidence and provide educators, parents and learners with the information they need to help them make wise decisions about what ed tech they should buy and how they should apply that educational technology most beneficially. I want to ask how we can make good quality evidence about ed tech accessible and understandable for everyone. In today's episode, I want to examine the state of technology in schools, what evidence and impact looks like, and how we know if ed tech really does benefit teaching and learning. I'm delighted to say that I have an outstanding panel of guests here with me in our Zoom studio. Welcome to Tom Hooper, who's founder and CEO of Third Space Learning, to Neelam Palmer, who's director of digital transformation and education at AISL Harrow Schools, to Richard Kalata, author and CEO of ISTE, and to Katie Novak, strategist, writer and speaker at Smart Technologies. Thank you so much for joining me. With such a wealth of expertise in the room, Let's get started with an initial question about how do we know EdTech works? Tom, I'd like to start with you, please. Third Space Learning has conducted research into online tutoring for years now. So please, can you tell us briefly what you see as EdTech's main potential in the world of education? And secondly, from your perspective as CEO of an EdTech company, how do you explore the extent to which the EdTech your company build is working for your customers? The answer to the first question is, is access. I think that the, the, certainly the goal for us as a business, and I think the goal for, we could widen actually to technology, but certainly education technology is to increase access, notably for those children from disadvantaged backgrounds where there is still too much of a gap in this country and indeed around the world in terms of outcomes. Technology has transformed people's access to information across the world. And indeed, it's done so in our schools as well. And, and that's what we do at Third Space Learning. So kind of our specific take on it is we recruit and train tutors in emerging mar markets to provide high-scale, low-cost tuition to disadvantaged children in schools in England. Um, and was just recently launched in the US as well. 50% of our pupils are eligible for pupil premium. We've delivered around 1.6 million hours of tuition into English schools since we started. So it's, it's a really good example of how technology can transform both the supply side of the equation in terms of access to teachers, thus increasing access for disadvantaged children to high quality education. Um, so that for me is the, the purpose of, of our business. I think that's gotta be the goal for, for EdTech as well. Um, coming to your second question, which is a, a, a complicated one. So we commission and conduct research at a number of different levels into the market to help understand the size of the attainment gap and therefore the role that, that businesses such as ours and indeed EdTech in general must play to help close that attainment gap. Then as a business, there's kind of three levels of research that we look at. One, which the first one is, is marketing, frankly. How do you explain the role and impact of your business to your customers and your prospective customers? Two, how do you show the specific impact that your product has had for your actual customers? And three, how do you understand the, the sort of the, the good and the bad, the guts of what you're doing such that you can improve? I mean, innovation is the, the kind of the nice way of saying that, but you've got to understand the good and the bad to understand where you're going to improve. I know that when we talk about research um, and when we talk about impact, I think we tend to think around quantitative measures, which is the ideal. However, education is, is it's a messy picture in truth. There are a lot of factors going on. So actually what we find is that qualitative measures are in many ways more valuable because it helps us understand the context and helps us tell the story both to the teacher 
to the student, to senior leadership team, and tell the story internally so we can understand the nuance of the picture that we've got to try and fix and improve and make as good as possible. Um, so I'm afraid I can't give you a, a defined answer, but what I would stress is that I think qualitative research and understanding is as important as quantitative research, both in terms of innovation, but also explaining the impact um, and the experience that you're delivering to the students, schools, teachers that you work with. Thank you, Tom. And it's real music to my ears to hear you say the word context, because that qualitative picture around context is so important, isn't it? We know from decades of research that context is the major factor in whether a child learns or not. So it's really interesting to hear you saying that. And also the points you make about the research and the evidence being important internally for your product development, as well as externally for communicating to, to your customers, basically. Do you find either one of those things harder or easier than the other? Do you find your team receptive? We find that, so I certainly find as the CEO, that the team internally is far more demanding in terms of data and research because they're tasked with a difficult job of delivering impact. We actually find that teachers are it's not less demand, they're more understanding of the reality. So we are, for, for what we do, it's everything. It means the world to us. From the teacher's point of view, we are one intervention mm -hmm. as a part of the whole week. So they understand that, that, that um, we're not going to deliver um, that one hour a week is a part of a bigger picture, and it's the bigger picture that the teacher's focused on. So they know that perhaps... Should I say they understand, for example, reasons why the child might not have attended, why the child might not be engaged. They understand additional remedial interventions that that child is receiving in addition to the one to one that we deliver. So they are far more understanding um, and indeed supportive, I actually find, uh, in terms of what we do. And what they often want is a they want a simpler narrative in terms of the work that TSL has done with their students that is easy to pick up and read across into the classroom. I think sometimes we've been guilty in the past of trying to come up with overly complicated reporting where we assumed that teachers wanted really good quantitative data in terms of the impact. Actually, what they wanted was something that was simpler that they could pull into the bigger picture that they're tasked with delivering as that class teacher. It's internally, the teams are looking for more and more data to try and do their jobs externally, teachers are looking for um, a simpler narrative as well as, and I'll bring it back to this point on qualitative feedback, feedback from the tutor as a human and the student as a human in terms of the experience that the student and tutor are having together. Neelam, I'd like to come to you next, if that's okay. You are, as I understand it, working to develop effective strategies for the way technology is used in education across Harrow schools, whose aims include continuous pursuit of excellence and digital transformation. And you have a PhD in educational technology. So I think you must be very well placed to answer my questions about what do you see as EdTech's main potential in the world of education? And from your perspective, as a director of digital learning and education across a number of schools, how do you explore the extent to which the EdTech your organization uses works for your student, teacher or administrator? In terms of how we explore the extent to which EdTech works for our customers, I really tend to follow what we call the TPAC model. Now, the TPAC model, which was introduced by Mission Co., is based around a pedagogical design for teaching. So really less so in terms of delivering expectation to your stakeholders. But it has a very similar strand in the sense that we work with the edtech sits within a technology space. It sits within a pedagogical space. It sits within a curriculum space, which feeds into uh, the, the students' learning. So in that context, when we're using edtech, we are looking at methods and approaches in which we can streamline and make our 
system processes more effective. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to look at it. There's the technological side of things where you need to ensure that the ed tech's there to boost our architecture. It's there to afford the opportunities that these devices, that the technology we're bringing into our classrooms can run smoothly. But at the same time, unless we have that in place, then we have a different sort of picture. We're using ed tech in a pedagogical sense. And you're then you're focusing on things like um, efficient teaching and learning workflows. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at the wider school-wide um, pedagogical practices that are taking place on the ground. And so ed tech could be reframed uh, almost redefined in that context where it's not so much technical, where it's not laying the foundations, but it is the the, the, the core, the design, the, the air, the essence in the classrooms of what we're trying to do. And then in another context, we have ed techs where we're delivering it in a very curriculum side of things. And we're looking to infuse, bring it into the curriculum and ensure that whatever we're doing, we're doing with relevance and meaning. So that's how when we when we look at ed tech, it's not just looking at from through a single lens of, for instance, smart boards or networks or both or you know um, people assessment software or progress. It's it's the whole picture, and I've not talked about parent engagement. Neither have I talked about wide opportunity that that will come to later on. But in terms of how and where we want to place our ed tech, we need to ensure that they all work together as well. So there's countless, there's numerous numbers, and there's hundreds and hundreds of ed tech products out there. But one size doesn't fit all, and we know that. So how do we ensure that what we're going to put into our systems, into our culture, into our workflows, actually works together? How do we stitch it so that it's streamlined, so that we are ensuring it's not an add-on process, but it's it's, it's adding to the teaching and learning workflows. And then we're creating new and development way, innovative ways to, to introduce and make our curriculum more meaningful. So in that sense, although the Mishra and TPAC model is, is used in such a different context, it actually lends itself really well in considering how and in what ways we can use ed tech within the context of our schools. If I went back to your first question in terms of what do I see as the edtech's main potential in the world of education, I think edtech goes even beyond what I've just said. There is a wider community. There is parental engagement. There are stakeholders, which goes beyond a student, a teacher, administrator. We have parents. And then as, a, as an educator, we have a duty to a community to continue to nourish and feed and deliver not only excellence, but um, opportunities to all. So I see the main potential as um, using the technology beyond those three, three modular areas of tech pedagogy and curriculum in a way where we can use it and extend its use in a wider fashion. So here I'm thinking online mobile learning solutions. We've come past a very difficult phase in the last few years, and we have learned new approaches and methods and possibilities that we have never done before. So where I think we're at a point, a turning point now where we can bring education to life in a different context. Yes, for some children, a more traditional way of learning using the tech in the classrooms would suit them very well. But given that we've experimented and played and explored new opportunities, there are new methods and new innovation that we can bring about through online learning solutions. And this is applicable to our students, to students beyond, and also to the reduced capacity that we have at present. So it's no, there's no surprise that we don't necessarily always have the skills and, and the resources at hand. But by reaching outwards, using the technology to enable these new methods of learning, we will be able to capitalize on the skill set that the wider community can offer us, but at the same time enrich other lives. I think a main potential for the education using edtech is taking what we have and making it widely accessible through the technology because it can have an outreach, it can extend out, it can feed into other communities um, and, and also learn from each other. I, I feel that in the past where we were with our edtech, it was quite um, localized. A lot of what we did, we did secular within our communities, and that's all we knew. But now there's so much more breath and so much more that we can do using tech to um, to its maximum opportunity. That is fascinating, and I, and I couldn't agree more about the complexity. It's interesting hearing you talk about that TPAC model, because I'm sure other people listening would, would find that useful too. Also fascinated by your point about community engagement and just picking up on a really important part of community parents. Do you find it a challenge to engage parents through technology or do you find them keen and eager? I, I imagine it's different in different um, hmm. places, but can you say a little bit more about 
parents particularly and the potential that technology provides to, to engage with them? I think there is a mixed bag here, to be very honest. Um, I think you'll find some parents who love the technology and find that it's um, it's made it really flexible. It's a very flexible opportunity. So things like parent evenings, for instance, nobody ever wants to go, not necessarily go back to face-to-face -face meetings, given that we now have that virtual environment in which we can conduct these, these um, the meetings. But in the other sense, then you'll have others who really want to come back into the classroom and speak to the teachers face-to-face. -face. So I think there's a bit of both. Sometimes some technologies can get quite complicated and very difficult. And that's a really important thing to also assess, the user interface. Not all parents are necessarily digitally literate or digitally savvy and so it's an assumption we, we should generally not make while bringing in technology having said that in a similar vein we look at our schools in asia and uh, southeast asia and in china and technology is at the crux of everything we do um, having to touch money having to sign documents um, having to go into school it, it would seem more of an alien approach than just jumping on and, in, and connecting via technology. So I think there's a bit of both. It just depends on, I think, the culture, uh, the schools, the setup, um, and also the educational background of parenting. I think parents on the whole are looking to be educated um, and want to know more about how their children, uh, what, what, are the, what are their children doing online? What are they learning in school? What are some of the things they can do to help provide and steer guidance for them? Um, so there, there is a mixed bag and, it's it's quite important to just realize your clientele where you, where the school is and what context and how far advanced are they in using technology because that will sort of rub off at home as well. Yeah. That makes so much sense. It's that word context again, so important, isn't it? Thank you so much, Neelam. Uh, Richard, I'd love to come to you next, please. The CEO of ISTE, which is obviously a big name in the industry, an international organization that's all about helping educators use technology to solve tough problems. How do you convince people around the world that they can solve uh, tough problems with technology? And so with respect to that, you know, what do you think EdTech's main potential for the world of education is? And from your perspective as CEO of a big international organization, how do you explore the extent to which what you're doing um, with your members is really helping them to engage with evidence. You know, I think it's it's a it's a bit of a challenge. It was just being totally blunt because um, there are so many uh, examples of ways that technology is being used currently in education that isn't solving a meaningful problem, uh, yes. or certainly isn't making a, a, a much much of a of an impact. And uh, and it's and that has only accelerated in our post-COVID world, right? Where we we spent a lot of time uh, distributing devices and software uh, in the hands of of teachers under kind of what I would call emergency remote learning circumstances, and uh, and it didn't come with the the training, the visioning, the uh, uh, you know understanding that it is needed or was needed in order to really use it in very, very powerful ways. And so, so what you have is a whole bunch of examples of, of um, technology that has, has essentially digitized traditional practice, right? We take yeah. uh, worksheets that we used to do on paper, we've now scanned them and put them onto a screen. And then, you know, we, we go around and people say, see, technology can't make a difference in learning. Well, <laughs> of course it can't, if that's what you're doing with it. I'm the first one to say that. Uh, but those examples are much more um, prominent now because there was such a quick adoption of, of technology without the proper training uh, ar around how to use it. And so a lot of um, what my work is and the work of our organization is trying to say, hey, hang on a second, let's look at what are really effective practices. Uh, and there's a couple things that um, that have already come up so far in this conversation that I think are really important to note. One is context, right? Mm -hmm. um, often there's people, you know, want to know what, what, what tool works best? Well, you can't decide what tool works best because it depends on what you're trying to do with it and where you're trying to do with it and how how uh, uh, prepared your, your teachers are, what sort of supports you have, the age of your kids. I mean, you know, all of those things. Um, and and this, this sort of very simple, well, tell me, just tell me what works um, answer is, uh, you know, impossible. I, I often will say, you know, when, when I was at, I used to work at the U.S. Department of Education, and we had this uh, program that attempted to look at uh, ed tech uh, uh, tools in this very scientific way, you know, out of any context. You just, we looked at them in the lab, and you ran your tests, and you said whether they worked or not. Well, what we found out is that uh, nothing worked anywhere because nothing worked everywhere. 
<laughs> right. And so, and so because, because it could, so, so part of the, the, the important point to take away here is it depends on what you're doing, where you're doing. If you have uh, highly skilled teachers, there are certain tools and approaches for using technology that are going to work wonderfully well. If you have novice teachers that don't putting some of these tools could be a train wreck. Right. And so it's very important that we're looking at what they do in context. So that's, that's just one thing I want to underline. But the other part of this, which is really important uh, to, to remind people again, is, is what do you want to do? What are you starting with? What is, the, what is the goal? It is shocking to me how many times I get a call from an education leader that says, hey, we just bought you know, 10,000 Chromebooks or, or iPads or whatever, you know, insert name of device here, right? Uh, what should we do with them? And I'm like, I, that, is, that is the worst time possibly to be asking me that question. Um, and 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 so often we start using technology before we think about what is the what are what problem are you trying to solve? And so literally, I start all my conversations with that. What is your vision for what you would like to do? Are there, is there a problem you're trying to solve? Is it that engagement should be more? Is that creativity should be more? Is that literacy is is needs to be a priority? Is that your kids can't uh, perform math <laughs> at the level that you would? Uh, want them to is that you don't have enough engagement with the community what whatever that is we can then go down and start looking at some pretty impressive solutions for using technology but if you can't define that if you don't know what problem you're trying to solve then you know whether you're picking up a paintbrush or a hammer uh you know or a screwdriver it kind of doesn't really matter uh and, and that's why you see the kind of the digital equivalent of people you know dipping a dipping a hammer in paint and trying to paint the wall with it right uh it doesn't work because they haven't defined what what their tool is so that's the conversation that i try to have first is what are you trying to do yeah. and then look at look at some phenomenal examples that we can see around the globe of, of where uh technology is, is helping and based on that let's try to pair up the right solution i love that nothing worked anywhere because nothing works everywhere. <laughs> yes, that's what's wrong with that question, what works, isn't it? And, and your point about vision being vital is so important, isn't it? And it's about pedagogical vision, not and, and the technology meeting the pedagogical imperative, not the other way around. But there's something else you said there that I'd just like to pick up if that's okay, and that's training, because you were saying about digitizing traditional practice being something that we're seeing more and more of. And of course, that doesn't take us forward in, in the way that we know we could be taken forward in terms of transformable techno transformative technology. So how do we engage with that training agenda? How do we persuade the people with the purse strings, so to speak, to invest in that training? And, and how best do we do that training? That's an easier question to answer because you can just look at places where they have where where uh, appropriate energy has been invested in in preparing teachers and leaders, and both the outcomes and the uh, uh, sort of process of of doing learning is is so much better. You know, clearly yeah. night and day. I, 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 there was a. Um, school network that we were working with uh, recently, and uh, we went and reviewed their plans and there was all this energy focus on, um, you know, devices and, and technology and software purchases and almost nothing on on teacher training, uh, teacher coaching. And, you know, our, our advice says, you know, this will this will not work, it is going to be a mess, it is not going to work. And, uh, you know, a decision was made, we're going to move forward anyway, you know, okay. Uh, and and it, 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 failed spectacularly. It was a total disaster. Uh, and and those are, you know, unfortunately, I feel badly that that was the case, but it provides a really nice black and white example uh, between other other places, other school networks, uh, where, where there's been focus on, on learning uh, how to really use technology in appropriate ways. And, and you see some phenomenal results. It is such a, it's probably in all my time in education, you know, uh, clear results, clear evidence is hard. It's hard to find when you're dealing with people yeah. and how they're learning. It is one of the things that is completely consistent 100% of the time. It is the most obvious result. If you prepare teachers and train them well, the technology implementation and use will go very well, generally. Uh, if you don't, it will always be a disaster. And, and there's, I, I, I truly can't think of one example that has not followed that. And so it seems so clear and so obvious. Uh, I think we just need to do a better job of pointing to those examples yes. and, and, and just being really, um, uh, uh, you know, much more um, adamant as, as education leaders that it is not appropriate, just as it wouldn't be appropriate to um, 
give a surgeon uh, you know, new laparoscopic tools without ever having them been trained on how to do that and start operating on patients. It would be just as inappropriate uh, to hand technology tools to, to educators with no training, no vision, and expect there to be good results. Katie, I'd like to come to you now, please. And you're one of smart technology strategists driving the EdShift webinar series, I believe. So you explore the latest educational research and practice and lay out key findings in the context of real world classrooms. So the same question to you really, you know, what do you see as EdTech's main potential for the world of education? And as a strategist for an EdTech company, how do you explore the extent to which the EdTech your company builds is working for your customers? I'll start, you know, to top up on the initial question in terms of what is the potential for EdTech, you know, I think um, very much in agreement with all of the pieces that um, that my peers here have mentioned so far. And I would add to, you know, these elements of, you know, access and accessibility, the idea of technologies unique opportunity to personalize learning in a way that has never been accessible previously without technology, the opportunities that technology provides to give more personalized pathways for students. Every one is an individual and learning is not a linear process. And to personalize at scale, 50 years ago was much, um, you know, much more difficult, if not impossible, um, you know, than it is today with the tools um, that are available. So I think that that idea of personalization is what I would add to some of the, the notes about access and accessibility um, that is part of what, um, you know, technology has and, and will allow us to do. Um, so that that really is a big element um, to it for me. In terms of looking at the impact, I think, you know, yes, and, and um, we'll get into this a bit more, I think, in the evidence question as well, because it's understanding impact and evidence is absolutely critical. And as, as we've all mentioned, it's incredibly complex. At SMART, we consistently, you know, are doing research, um, whether that's across uh, a variety of different uh, schools and classrooms or, or with, you know, diving deep with one classroom in particular um, to understand how and why uh, teachers are using their technology, the ways that they're employing it. Um, you know, we're in a unique position because our technology doesn't do one thing. It isn't uh, a, a single language learning app, for instance. Um, you know, it's, it's something that can be used across um, age ranges across subjects, whether it's, um, you know, interactive panels or, um, you know, the software that we create that students can interact with on their devices. It can do a lot of different things. Um, so, you know, how do we, how do we find evidence of, of different things, right? And so I think what it comes down to there is understanding how is it helping to engage students regardless of the subject? How is it helping to create a more active, connected uh, learning environment in classrooms? So we're you know, consistently looking at how that is working, how things can be done better, um, talking to customers you know, all the time um, about you know, how they're using products and um, you know, understanding both from the teacher side of things as well as from the administrator side of things, what does good look like for them? Um, you know, and and what are their motivations for using technology to help them get there? And how can we help them to do that uh, perhaps a little bit better? That's fascinating, and and I think the idea of engagement is important, isn't it? But engagement in learning, and that's the key, isn't it? Do you find that your conversations around engagement fall on fertile ears? Or do you find people see the term engagement as something that's too imprecise? Really interesting question. Um, I, I think both, both of those things are true, <laughs> um, you know, depending on who you're talking to. And I think at the end of the day, when we look at the idea of engagement, um, again, it doesn't, you know, necessarily mean one thing. So when we describe it as the idea of students being connected with their learning, um, you know, we know through 
science that when when people are connected uh, with their learning, when people feel um, that their learning has context for them as an individual, regardless of what age they are, um, that, that, that they will learn, they will remember better, our brains will create pathways that help us remember things better. So I think that when, you know, I, I generally try to look at engagement from a, a a relatively scientific um, standpoint, actually, in terms of the, the neuroscience behind it, that when there is active, uh, connected ways, when students are able to show their learning in different ways, those are when we see that students, um, you know, are are really a part of the learning. So mm -hmm. it's it's about the type of engagement that isn't just, you know, raising a hand or, um, you know, completing a worksheet. It's really um, that depth of engagement that shows a level of connectivity to the content, to the curriculum, and to the, the entire classroom community, really, um, where we know that that learning is going to be sticky. I really like that. I really like your the way you framed that as learners feeling connected to their learning and that what they're being offered has context for them that makes a lot of sense to me and i want to come back and dig a bit deeper into evidence with you in just a moment smart technologies is proud to sponsor this important episode smart's edtech assessment tool provides a valuable way to get collaborative insights from stakeholders across your school district or trust Benchmark yourself against a massive global database and see where you stand. Let these insights help you prioritize your actions for impactful edtech and ICT planning and implementation. Visit www.smarttech.com profile to get started with the edtech assessment tool today. See where you stand and prioritize action for impact. The conversation with Richard about training just made me want to quickly ask you, Tom, when you were talking earlier about your team, do you find you need to help train your team up to engage with your research evidence or does it grow naturally as your team progresses? I'm just intrigued. We talked about teacher training. I'm just wondering about training within your organization. And actually, I'm going to come back and ask Katie the same question, giving you a heads up more than I did for Tom. <laughs> so I think that the challenge we've had that, that we're starting to get on top of is less about training for the team. And that we do do that. And they have been quick to take that up. It's more been about building the infrastructure that can operate. So really good quality data, and as well mm -hmm. as technology as well. So, so even if you give people data, they can't actually do anything with it. I mean, it's still valuable, but slightly, what's the point? If you don't have the right technology and data architecture where people can actually get into the data and run experiments and thereby innovate, then there's, there's, there's not that much action that can flow from that data. So, so the, the big investment we're making is in, in the, the, um, as I say, the infrastructure within which the teams work. The teams themselves, yes, we do invest in that, but, but you know, they're very capable and they're, they're you know, they're of that mindset already that that's less the problem frankly that we've got to solve um and it, it's really difficult because every enterprise company i know talks about data strategy and the importance of data it's really difficult to get that right um yeah. you know, are you capturing the right data can you use that data properly can you it, it, you know that the not to mention this kind of comes back to that quorum quant point but what is the user experience from which you derive that data? And I'll give you a good example of this. So every student that, that does a tutoring program with TSL sits an initial diagnostic assessment and then sits ongoing pre and post session quizzes to help us diagnose their learning gaps and track and report their, their progress and impact. That sounds great when I say it, but actually how many pupils actually sit that assessment? How engaged are they with that assessment? Are they distracted by their assessment? Are they clicking through that assessment? So, so there's a lot of factors that come into play in terms of technology, user experience, data architecture, which are far more impactful than the training of the team. So, so that's the bigger picture that we focus on. Yes, we do train the team. That, that's, that's sort of lower down the list of priorities. And you know, they are, um, hopefully they'll be listening to this at some point, a very capable team. So I, I don't worry about that too much. That's really interesting. And, and Tom, I would suggest that actually a large part of that might be because you have a culture that encourages 
that kind of approach to, to research and evidence. And obviously you as the leader of the company have a big impact on that, which is clearly very positive. But back to Katie, I gave you a bit of heads up that I was going to ask you that same question about internal training. But I'd also like to pick up with you a bit more on what good evidence looks like. I'm very struck by the breadth of issues that you explore in your EdShift podcast from identity, equity, accessibility. So the, the notion of what good evidence looks like when you're dealing with such a complexity of possibilities is quite a tough one, I think. So two questions for you, both quite difficult, I think. Um, one, how do you make sure that your team are equipped, motivated, knowledgeable enough to, to really engage with the evidence? And then secondly, what does good evidence really look like from your perspective? I, I love, love those questions. Thanks, Rose. In terms of the, the internal team question, one of the amazing things about SMART, as I think is becoming increasingly true with some of the, the newer ed tech companies we see, is that a significant number of people um, you know, that work at SMART have background in education from, from someone who, who is a, a former um, you know, middle school teacher who now works in software development um, you know, to the many, many classroom teachers that we have um, as part of our, our own efficacy and implementation teams that help to provide training. Um, there, every everywhere throughout the company, we have people with a variety of you know classroom and education backgrounds, and I think that inherently you know makes our team interested in the data, interested in you know understanding, interpreting, and actioning data, and it comes back to to our purpose as a company as well, and the idea that you know we are not here to, you know, throw around technology and, and hope something works, right? Um, you know, which is is part of the the challenge that we're all talking about here is, you know, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of technology just kind of gets put in classrooms and, you know, sometimes it's not even cared if, if you know, the uptake is there, the implementation is there. We care deeply about the, the impact and, and really our ethos as a company is around ensuring that, that we're making these connections that really matter um, for students, for teachers, for community. Um, and so that I think that the inherent background and just sort of culture of our company um, you know, lends itself to wanting to understand the data and to, to wanting to action the data um, and to understanding the why behind, you know, anything that we're doing. Um, and because our products are built from the ground up um, internally with education, um, you know, at, at the heart of what we're doing, um, I think it, it really lends to, you know, yeah, of course, of course we want the data. Um, you know, of course we want to understand how and, and why, um, you know, and the impact it's, it's critical. In terms of what good evidence looks like, I think the, the point that Tom made about um, quantitative versus qualitative earlier, um, you know, is super interesting and, and super important. The idea that in, in some cases, good evidence might look like um, 85% of students improved their math skills when they were utilizing this tool. That's great. Um, you know, sometimes that might be what good evidence is. In other cases, good evidence might be on a more qualitative input. The good evidence might be the idea that, you know, more students completed, um, you know, a, a final project in a way that was really interesting for them. Um, it might be that the shy student at the back of the class actually has a way of contributing to the conversation um, because of technology. I think there's a lot of different ways that that looks. Um, and one of the projects um, that I'm lucky to work on at SMART is um, what we call our, our EdTech assessment tool, which is a... Um, essentially a global database um, that kind of works both on, on a macro and a micro level. Um, you know, on the micro level, it is essentially, um, it's based on a ton, um, a, a literature review of different 
uh, methodologies and standards um, from different organizations, including um, the ISTE standards, including um, OECD, um, including some different frameworks from around the world where we've essentially been able to do a, a review of these different frameworks, understand what's the same and what's different, um, and identify um, a core set of, of 32 different capabilities that are important for successful implementation with technology. They're all sort of rubricized, um, and schools are able to assess themselves um, on everything from that, you know, as Richard was talking about, that all-important vision and strategic leadership, how are they doing in that bucket of capabilities, um, to their network and infrastructure, how does that look, the connection of the pedagogy with technology, how does that look, um, you know, as, as Neelan was speaking to the um, importance of engagement with different stakeholders, including students themselves, including the educators, including parents and the broader community. So schools are able to go in and, um, and assess themselves against these different um, capabilities. They're able to understand um, and even look at what the differences are um, in a school that you know, has a lot of different departments, has different grade levels. What does the arts department versus the maths department versus the executive of the trust, um, what do they all think things are going? Where do they all think they fall on the different rubrics um, for each of these different places. And so, um, you know, imagine being able to sit at a school, uh, you know, at a leadership team meeting with all of your department heads and say, you know, um, our colleagues in the math department really don't think that they're um, doing so well with, they don't feel good about their professional development. You know, they don't think that that's going very well, you know, and we're able to compare all of these levels of development um, against the outcomes that the school is experiencing and not just academic outcomes, that's part of it, of course, um, you know, but also, you know, teacher retention, you know, the effectiveness of, of learning with technology, uh, a lot of different ways of measuring those outcomes. Um, so that does some, some really interesting things and can inspire some very important conversations at an individual school level. And it also allows us to look at, you know, a regional and geographic level of, you know, what are, you know, say schools in the UK doing, um, you know, what are the schools reporting high outcomes doing and what technology are they utilizing versus uh, what are the lower outcome schools doing? And we're able to sort of compare and contrast and um, have this global data to help provide guidance about where people can focus next. And uh, Neelan was speaking a lot about the importance of teachers uh, engaging with parents and kind of that broader community. And that actually rose to the top um, when we examined the data um, earlier this year following COVID, the schools that continued to report the highest outcomes throughout the pandemic were those who were um, doing the best at engaging with that broader community, at engaging with parents. Um, those were the schools that continued to see high outcomes across across the globe when, when we look at that data. So it's That's a very interesting funny. opportunity to, to contrast and see how things are going and um, what are those different areas of development, whether it's professional development, community engagement, what matters most? Thank you, Katie. That sounds fascinating. Um, and actually, you've led beautifully into the, the question I was going to come to Neelam next, because as Katie's just been saying, you know, you're working with teachers. And so in your position, how do you engage teachers with the evidence and, and what does good evidence look like for them? You know, Kate has alluded to the qualitative as well as the quantitative point made first by Tom. And, and Tom was saying that this kind of strong narrative can be very powerful with teachers. From your perspective, Neelam, as, as working you know, with a lot of educators, what does good evidence look like for them? Well, it's very challenging to work with educators, particularly in very busy schools. I guess I'm in a slightly different situation because I sit at group level. And so we have in place a, a very strong structure. Obviously, in the past, I've worked in schools where I was working with educators on a one to one. So I can reflect on that. Uh, but within the structure itself and in particularly in every school, what we really look forward to is either a team of digital champions or somebody accountable in this position to help um, work with teachers so that we're using the technology in ways to to make to make that effect that we're looking for. Um, so in terms of what would look like good evidence to us, it's again, it's 
it's a bit of everything. It's what Tom said. We, as teachers, and I say we because, again, I was part of it, we just need a simple narrative because there's so many different influences that are taking place in a child's life. And it's not necessarily academic. It could be from a pastoral part, side of things. It could be from a health and safety. It could be that the child is not having a good day. It could be that, that they're really, really interested in the topic of study that they're doing at that moment. So all we are really looking for is a simple narrative and an intervention which we could then make a bigger picture. We could we could con- co-construct that story we need to tell based on this child's abilities. But if you think about what we've got now in the market in terms of the ed tech products, we have a lot of products that will offer us also quantitative data. And that very simple, simple um, applications like Insight, for instance, in Teams, but slightly more sophisticated ones like Century Tech or a Pupil Voice, Pupil Progress, et cetera. Where you're able to then throw in these interventions in subject space, subject-based application. So that itself again will help use the uh, um, bring on the evidence that we need in in um, refining or putting together the pieces of puzzles that we need for the student in developing their profile and identifying their weaknesses and their strengths. But I think ultimately the most important thing in considering how the evidence is is what is looking from our perspective. Is, is when it makes that change, it makes that impact, it makes that change in behavior that we're looking for in whatever way you're looking at. So for instance, again, if you look at this, I'm going to take us back to that TPAC model. If you're looking at it from a technology side of thing, if you've brought in that ed tech and we're looking at that evidence um, bank, we want to see for from a very operational side of things, has it saved costs in our school, for instance, right? Um, or is it has it uh, stopped reduplicating data? Uh, has it reduced those channels of extra uh, community, you know, a lot of people doing the same job, for instance? So from that point of view, it's really practical, real simple, and we can, we can make this analysis quickly. In terms of a t- uh, providing evidence from a teacher point of view, we would think about things like are we able to identify students have some sort of improved attainment? And it could be quite crude data in terms of, look, their scores have increased in that um, in that area. Or have we re- reduced that attainment gap? And that was really big for us in the last year, where we came back with such a big gap in um, education and literacy more than anything else. So where we, at that point, it was very much quantitative in terms of, okay, this is where they are in terms of literacy. Now we're going to reassess them three, four months later to see if you've reduced that gap. And I know, again, it's, it's just one little number, but it helps it helps that project, we create that trajectory that we need to see where the child is at and the level they're at. Um, so there is, in, when we look at the evidence, we're looking at the data, we want to see the impact on areas of student knowledge, improving attainment, and even now very much about behavior and well-being. But at the same time, we want to make sure that it has an impact on teachers, because obviously they're the ones going to be running with it. So is it helping our teachers? Is it making their processes more efficient? I love the fact that now with the new technology, things are just so much more transparent and we're able to share resources. Once we were never able to do that, at least not in such an easy way to do, but now we can. And then with that comes teacher well-being, with that comes teacher efficiency. I do really struggle with reducing teacher workload because I cannot see any of our workload getting reduced. But what I can see is that we're learning to work smarter. And that's the phrase I would put forward. We're just learning to work smarter. And because of that, we're able to do more in in perhaps a more um, proficient manner, rather than saying we're reducing our workload. Because the things we needed to do, we weren't able to get Mm. to. Now that we're automating some of our process, now that we're leaning on each other because of the collaboration, we're just able to deepen um, what we need to do in order to get our children to where we need to get them to. And then in terms of school, you know, are we improving parent engagement? That's again, very easy to do, for instance, yes. just looking at which parents are coming on board, who's online, who's with us in these workshops. Um, are we able to save school money? Are we improving school processes? So those are really the key areas when we look at tech and when we want to bring them into our classroom. But there's so much, you know, there's so much yes. out there. And we can get a lot of data. But the end of it is, you know, tech really should be based on evidence on of what works rather than on hunches or long, you know, or, or I'm going to guess this is going to work or this is what another school is doing or this is the most popular product in the, ma- in the market. It's more about what works within your context, within your culture, within your environment, with the students you have and the teachers who are on board rather than, again, um, this is a blanket solution to all. 
That makes so much sense to me. And I love that phrase, learning to work smarter rather than reducing workload. That that is eminently sensible. Thank you, Neelam. Richard, I'm going to come back to you now. And you spoke earlier about vision being vital. And so when it comes to evidence, I'm interested to know what good evidence that's linked to that vision might look like, but also about the kinds of conversations you're having with stakeholders about evidence and whether or not you believe we are making good progress when it comes to getting better evidence into the hands of the people who need it. I'm actually going to build on what uh, what Neelan was just saying, because I think there's a really interesting, very thin um, you know, veneer of what we will accept as evidence. Uh, and it's usually some flavor of test scores. Mm. Uh, and, and I'm not saying it's not bad. I'm not one of those people that says we should throw test scores out. I believe that there is value in that. But that is such a, a small slice of what we should be considering. Uh, and even within the test scores, the types of tests we deliver are so narrow and so limited and so biased. Uh, one of the greatest opportunities that I think we have with technology is improve assessments. There's so many better ways that we can use tech to improve assessments. And most of what we do still looks like pick a, you know, one of these four options and, and it's just, just inappropriate and, and, and problematic. So, so that's one, but, but there's other types of, of evidence that I would love to see. Uh, you meant, you know, Neela mentioned cost and time. That's certainly important. I know we don't like to think about it that way, but mm -hmm. the more I can free up time or cost in learning from, you know, a, a repetitive activity or activity that, that doesn't need to take as much time, that just gives me more opportunity to focus on other areas. Uh, but the one that I think that we, we don't spend nearly enough time on is uh, engagement. Can we measure how engaged the learners are? There are piles and mounds of research that show that the more engaged learners are, the more impactful and effective the learning experiences will be. And, and, and yet we don't do a whole lot. We don't spend a whole lot of time measuring engagement. And so that's something that we should be uh, you know, spending a lot more time looking at. Um, I, I also think, you know, when we think about um, measuring uh, other sorts of tools and products in our life, in our world. And I spend you know, a fair amount of time in my work working with companies in Silicon Valley and other places. There are some metrics that you often hear. So, so often you will talk about um, the user experience and the quality of the user experience. They will use words like, we want to see if our products surprise and delight right? Surprise and delight are not words that we use when we talk about school. <laughs> uh, we definitely aren't looking at measuring user experience. And so, uh, you know, measuring joy and is there joy in learning? Are students uh, and teachers feeling like they are excited about what they're doing? The, we just don't even come close to looking at those uh, those types of measures. So, so all I'm saying is, we need to to accept a much broader definition of the things that we are measuring and not that we throw any one thing out the window again i'm not proposing that we don't look at uh, you know test scores but man let's look at them in in alignment with some other uh, other important metrics as well uh student happiness i think is another important one boy the pandemic has taught us that we need to care more mm -hmm. about that uh and, and that 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 painting a broader picture is, is going to be really helpful. And, and back to technology, it actually helps us, we can measure these things in some more interesting ways than we can when, you know, in, in, when we were just using kind of paper, paper tests. Yes, I love the idea of, of joy. I think that's really interesting. And joy for teachers as well as learners, because there is something joyful about really learning and really teaching something well. It sure, doesn't sure. mean and, that and I think, uh, it has to be like, easy. It's that sometimes joy comes from doing something really hard and, and achieving something, doesn't it? That's, that's right. And that's why I like that word better than fun. Some people yes, like, you should absolutely. Learning fun. I don't know that learning always needs to be fun. It, it should be joyful. And, and something that I've noticed, and I don't know if you all have noticed this too, but in the, after the pandemic, we've realized that we have a lot of problems to deal with. You know, we have this learning loss and I know we want to call it all these different things, but whatever we call it, we just have this fact that we have kids yes. that are, are way behind where, 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 where they should be. And so we've doubled down on the seriousness of learning. You know, we're going to, now we're just going to like memorize even more and we're going to be really serious <laughs> about it. And in fact, it's the opposite, right, that we should be doing. We need this, just this massive infusion of, of joy in learning if we ever have a shot at getting over these very, very difficult last two years. This episode in our collaboration with the EdTech podcast would not be possible without the generous support of Smart Technologies. 
who have provided over 3.5 million smart displays to over 60 million teachers, students and leaders around the world for over 35 years. Their technology and support has won numerous awards all over the world and their digital learning tool, Lumio, an intuitive web-based software, has been recognised as the top collaboration solution by teachers, allowing for the creation of engaging lessons taken face-to-face, -face, remotely and in students' own time. To learn more, contact the team at www.smarttech.com. What's the biggest challenge that we face in terms of getting evidence into the hands of the people who need it? And I'm going to start with Tom. I So I was thinking a lot about, I'm going to say agency. And the, the, my thinking there is there's, there's not really a shortage of, of data. There's a lot of people doing research into education. So... I don't think the problem is the supply of evidence. And if for certainly the way I look at it, the purpose of evidence is action because it's far easier to take action that everyone is brought into if you've got good evidence. So I think that the challenge is ensuring that people have agency to take action based on the evidence. And I don't think that's always the case. You know, when I talked to you, asked me about my business. And I said, one of the most important things is making sure the team have the right infrastructure in terms yeah. of both access to data, but also the ability to run experiments, innovate, move quickly. So I can control agency, culture, and capability. And I'm confident in all of those. The challenge we have is making sure that the data um, and the tools and so on at their disposal allows them to make the most of that agency um, and capability. And I think that's, that's the same, I think that's the same at a, at a higher level as well making sure teachers can react and adapt and move and innovate as they do in the classroom anyway, but, but making sure policymakers have the agency to do that. Um, you know, our experience has been very shaped over the last couple of years by the National Tutoring Programme yes. in England. And it's a very strange example of how, how evidence and policy uh, don't always work particularly well together. Um, there is, you know, we have a, a very... Uh, well-invested but um, challenged national tutoring program based on evidence that, that I think works well at a very small scale but doesn't translate to the ambitions of the national tutoring program. Um, and you've got policymakers, civil servants, people in charge who I don't believe have the agency to adapt and react to the evidence because um, they're constrained by policy and reality. So I, I think my answer would be agency to act on the evidence rather than evidence per se. Thank you, Tom. I really like that agency to act on the evidence. But you've highlighted something. I think we probably need an entire episode on the issue of policy and evidence. Mm, so thank God, you. Yeah, we'll, okay, we'll come that to that. <laughs> Neelam, over to you. Briefly, what do you see as the main challenge when it comes to getting evidence into the hands of the people who need it? I think this is twofold, isn't it? It's really for the hands of the people responsible for the design of the technology and then those using the technology. Yes. In terms of the design of those responsible for the design of technology, I've put down three things, really. It's the knowledge of the context of what it is we're trying. Where is the pain point? What is it we're trying to study? Um what exactly is it that's how is it going to feed into the teaching practices or for the learning of the student? And I also put time because even though we've got, we get time and I know that there is, you know, a lot of, uh, for instance, uh, organizations, companies who are willing to allow, give schools time to do the trials, the period, that period of time they give six months or uh, six weeks is not sufficient. It's not sufficient to know whether it can be embedded into practice, uh, whether it's just an add-on, is it going to be fluid? Is it something that we need? Have we changed our entire day and structure to make it work? Um, so I would say time. And then I would say uh, targeting the right participants as well. Um, sometimes we, you know, in, in not, not necessarily all schools have the participants that are that keen and interested in taking it on. So um, the, the, you know, the people who are responsible for the design of technology, are they targeting the people who need to trial that product within yes. that environment to get to yield the outcomes that they're looking for? So now if you flip the question, look into the hands of those using the technology, again, it's very similar. It's time 
because there's never enough time in a school day and it's very difficult to lose any time in even trialing anything and I can say it again now over and over again that even though we get six weeks it's not enough we move it up to three months it's not enough we move it up to six months because we cannot we just don't have the time to to get the full picture uh, following that would be interest if something's not broken, why am I trying to fix it? How exactly is this tech going to evolve? How is it going to change my current practices? Why would I want to use this? So then the third purpose, what's the purpose behind yeah. it? Is it a challenge? Is it a pain point? Um, is it because I have to do it because that's what everybody says you have to do, for instance? So it was. it's really those three things that, that we put together at the time, time interest purpose um, into the hands of those using technology, because unless we can actually get past these challenges, which is possible, uh, but it's, it, it does put a lot of emphasis and heavy lifting on the teachers who, and the department yes. who need to ensure that something comes out of this because they've put their hands up to trial the product in, in the environment. That's such an important point, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think purpose is, is, is key all around, isn't it? We have to make sure that we're driven by purpose. It's akin a little, I think, to what Richard was saying about vision. It's certainly speaking the same language, isn't it? Thank you, Neelam. Katie, to you, challenge. What do you see as the biggest challenge or challenges when it comes to getting evidence in the hands of people who need it? Yeah, I was definitely thinking um, similar along the lines of, of uh, Neelam in the importance of, of understanding kind of the why and, and the purpose first. I also think that when it comes to getting the right evidence from the right people, um, gathering input from stakeholders is critical and not always an easy thing to do. Students are stakeholders, teachers are yes. stakeholders, parents are stakeholders. Um, how do we understand the impact that the tech is having on all of those groups? And, you know, how can all of that, you know, input be kind of consolidated and, and you know, fed back, I think is, is definitely one of the challenges, um, you know, that I see um, that we do, you know, work to, to address with, um, you know, with our ed tech assessment tool. Um, but yeah, that idea of, of input from across the stakeholders, understanding the variety of thoughts and the variety of, of impact that something is having is, is definitely a, a significant challenge. Um, not, an, not an insurmountable one, but you know, I, I think a significant challenge in terms of getting the right evidence about the right things. Yes, you're so right. I think engaging um, stakeholders for their input can be really tough, but really important too. We need to get better at doing, at it, doing that, don't we? Thank you. Katie. Um, the word that comes to mind is alignment. Mm. Uh, I feel like the biggest challenge is the fact that we have a, a research agenda that is not aligned to the needs of educators and education leaders. Uh, we aren't starting by asking them what questions they want answered. Uh, we're not asking them to be uh, engaged and involved in ways that they want to be engaged and involved, which is not just using their classrooms to collect data. Uh, and so I think that's one challenge. And then on the flip side, when we have uh, you know, evidence or, or results, uh, we're not presenting it to teachers in ways that help them, in ways that are meaningful for them. It's written in language that is uh, difficult for them or frankly, anybody to understand. Uh, it doesn't give the practical uh, examples to help with implementation. And so I feel like there's a lot of energy and, and money and time that's spent in, uh, in you know, doing research and, and data collection and education, but, but it misaligns in a way that it's like, uh, you know, two groups of people talking two languages and neither is understanding and each is frustrated with the other. And so I think if we can spend a little more time understanding the needs of teachers and aligning the research agenda to those needs, and then when we have uh, uh, results, uh, present them in ways that are very practical and implementable that actually can make a teacher's life better, uh, that's when we know we will have uh, hit, hit it on the mark. Absolutely. Alignment, a key challenge for sure. Uh, on so many occasions in the past, I felt that you know, particularly as an academic, you you read papers, you write papers, but so often they don't quite align with what's really needed by the people who are out there doing the teaching, doing the learning. So that uh, absolutely rings true for me. All great answers. Uh, I'd love to go on having this discussion for a great deal longer because it's been fascinating and a very rich discussion. I'm sure people who listen to this podcast will get an enormous amount 
um, from listening to the wise words uh, from my guests today. So I hope wherever you're listening, you found our discussion informative and practical and have something to use for yourself or to share with your team in the coming days. Thank you to Tom, Neelam, Richard and Katie. It's been great to have this conversation with you. To our listeners, if you would like more information on the series and our wonderful guests, please visit the EdTech Podcast website at www.theedtechpodcast.com and connect with us via social media. To see how Educate is keeping evidence at the heart of EdTech, you can also contact us via our website, www.educateventuresearch.com or join the conversation on Twitter. Thank you again to Smart Technologies for sponsoring this episode. Uh, And you can head on over to www.smarttech.com to see their award-winning products and software used by teachers all over the world. So you've been listening to the Evidence-Based EdTech series in collaboration with the EdTech podcast presented by myself, Rose Luckin. Please tune in for our forthcoming episodes in the series, which will include an examination of the use of AI in higher education to drive support and personalization for students, a point that Katie picked up on uh, in this episode. And we'll also be looking at deep skills in the age of a portfolio career. Where will we be studying the adoption of technology for learning in the workplace? Micro qualifications, the new CV, preparing future workers for the fourth industrial revolution. There's a whole host of topics coming your way. 